Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than a million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. This episode is a bit off the beaten path for us here at the Science of Success. Given the time of year when many are thinking, reflecting, being a bit more spiritual, we wanted to offer a little bit different of a perspective. This episode's not as science-based, but it still provides a fascinating dialogue with a Buddhist monk who was the first Westerner ever to be ordained by the Dalai Lama. We discuss life, meditation, mindfulness, and much more with our guest, Robert Thurman. I'm going to give you three really quick reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to our email subscribers, including a special guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything that we created based on listener demand, curated weekly emails that you're going to get from us every single week, including our Mindset Monday email, which listeners have been absolutely loving, short, sweet articles and stories that we found fascinating within the last week, and a chance to shape the show. You can vote on guests, submit your own questions to our guests, and much more. So sign up today by going to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that you only get access to when you sign up and join the email list. You can also, if you're on the go right now, if you're driving around, if you're on your phone, just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. That's SMARTER to 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed one of the most important evidence-based psychology principles that makes people successful, self-awareness. We looked at the difference between people who succeed and those who plateau. We talked about why self-awareness is the meta skill of the 21st century and the foundational skill required to succeed in nearly anything. 
including looking at conclusions from over 800 scientific studies about self-awareness with our guest, Dr. Tasha Yurik. If you want to master the most vital skill in the 21st century, listen to that episode. Now for the interview, but before we get into that, I wanted to make a quick note there. The audio quality in this interview is not the greatest. We had a little bit of trouble on Robert's end with some of the sound quality issues. And so I just wanted to let you know ahead of time that Robert's audio is not perfect, but there's some really good insights in this conversation, and I felt it was still worth sharing with you. Now for the show. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show, Robert Thurman. Robert is a professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies in the Department of Religion at Columbia University and the president of the American Institute of Buddhist Studies. Time Magazine has called him the leading American expert on Tibetan Buddhism and named him one of Time Magazine's most influential Americans in 1997. He was also the first Westerner to ever be ordained a Tibetan monk by the Dalai Lama. His works and books have been featured across the globe. Bob, welcome to the Science of Success. Well, thanks, Matt. Nice to talk to you. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you and your background, I know you've had a fascinating story. I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of your personal journey and how that led you to eventually becoming a monk and kind of where you are today. Well, okay. I was a Harvard undergraduate, and I decided that Western psychology and philosophy didn't quite get it right. (laughs) So I decided to go to India to see some deeper psychology. I had a sense it would be there. When I got there, there were a lot of really nice Indians, and but I got really turned on by the Tibetans and the knowledge they have of Indian Buddhism, of ancient Indian Buddhism. And so I started studying with them, and that's 54 years ago, 55 years ago, and never turned back. And I found the philosophical solutions I was looking for, the openness of mind to new questions I was looking for, the yogas, the meditations, the, everything, the people. It was just really great. I was speaking the language in about three months, and it was like coming home. So I'm still doing that. I must say I, I was a monk for about five, four or five years, but now I'm an ex-monk and I have a big family. And so it didn't, didn't damage me forever. <laughs> so that, that's pretty much my story. Then uh, joining academia is like coming back to another kind of monastery where you live um, with the American one, you know, where you have a family and you study what you want and you teach what you want after a while. And uh, it's a privilege. It's a wonderful thing. The human being is a learning machine, and that's what they should be doing with their life. So I'm really curious, you know, as somebody who's such an expert in something like Buddhism, where do you see kind of some of the common Western misunderstandings of the core principles of Buddhism? Well, Western and Eastern people do misunderstand Buddhism. It isn't really an East-West thing, and because they misunderstand themselves and they misunderstand life. And Buddhism as an ism, in a way, never really interested me, I have to say. But Buddhist science and the knowledge of the mind and the knowledge of reality was what really interested me. And I think that has a lot to offer to West and East, you know, and especially modern science is a little bit caught nowadays by the dogma of materialism. The idea that the mind doesn't exist, that mind over matter doesn't work, and uh, that's a big error. And mind is actually really the power that directs matter, in fact. 
which Buddhist science has a very strong evidence and arguments about. And uh, that really is useful to people. So I consider I'm going ever deeper into that. I don't claim to be enlightened or anything, but I've gotten in that direction. And I'm sure there is that direction, put it that way. And everyone can do that. That's what the human being is built for. And so that's what I like to do. I call it really Buddhist science, really, or inner science, as it's called in India. And yoga and Hinduism has a lot of that, too, because Buddhism totally influenced every country it was ever in. And it was in all the big Asian countries and had a huge impact on them. And having discovered it, I think it's going to have a huge impact here. It already has had some impact. And it will go on with one. I think one thing that the basic misunderstanding is that Buddhism teaches you that all you can do is suffer. And you can never get away from it. And you just better be resigned to it. That's one of the big misunderstandings. Meanwhile, Buddha discovered happiness. Actually, that's what he discovered and how to get rid of suffering permanently. And the second misunderstanding is that Buddhism is just meditating. And that's also a mistake. Meditation is a powerful tool for transforming yourself and learning, but it must be preceded by scientific learning and a lot of critical investigation, exploration and thinking and experiencing and analyzing your experience and seeing how your mind works. And then when you get a bit of orientation about what you are, what reality is, then meditation enables you to really bring it down to your gut and really change your life uh, more thoroughly. I mean, learning changes your life very much too, but to completely transform, you need to add meditation to learning. But you don't just do meditation off the bat. If you just meditate because somebody tells you that meditation is the solution to everything, you're basically deepening your ignorance, actually. <laughs> and you're becoming more, you'll become more egotistical and you become more isolated and alienated and more into yourself, where which is not really a useful place to be stuck in. You know? Not that there's anything wrong with including yourself, but being stuck in yourself is really not a good scene. So I want to dig into a couple different pieces of that. Let's start with this idea that meditation without context isn't useful. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, there's two kinds. One kind of meditation is just shutting your mind down, kind of, and not thinking, which gives a person brought up in our school system a kind of a buzz because we've been doing a lot of thinking and that we haven't felt that thinking has done us a lot of good because we're still a bit unhappy, you know. And so we get a buzz out of not thinking. But actually what that also does is that dulls your ability to learn from experience, to learn from teachers and from learning and from books. And it gives you a kind of palliative. It's like getting hooked on a palliative because you can just stop thinking and then that'll calm you down. And then some people even think you'll be enlightened when you have nothing in your mind. But I was joking like to say, when Buddha attained enlightenment, he didn't, the first thing he didn't say, he said, that was not the answer. You know? And what he said was, gee whiz, I know everything. It's really great. Reality really is fine. And you can be, it is happiness. And if you know reality, you're going to be happy. But unfortunately, of course, just by me telling you, you can't get there. You have to go to work on it yourself. But you have amazing ability to learn and also to transform once you have learned. So that's the thing. So that's one type of meditation is just emptying the mind type. Then the other type, which is more important, is analytic meditation or critical meditation, what they call insight meditation. And that's where you actually are thinking something directed toward exploration of yourself, your experience and the reality around you. And that's a very good one and very important one. But if you don't do that one and you just do the mind emptying one, then your original view of yourself and everyone has a slightly distorted view 
of the self by conditioning, by instinct, from former lives and so on, which is that each one thinks I'm the most important one. And they think that they don't think that they're being egotistical to think that. They think that's naturally everybody thinks I'm the most important. They think that's just a natural way to be. But then th that puts you at conflict with everybody else who doesn't agree with you. And so that puts you in a guaranteed program for misery, actually, since nobody else will agree that you're the most important. And yet you will keep struggling to sort of show that you are in some way. But still, no matter you can become president of the United States and people still will not think you're the most important. And so so you'll get really freaked out. So the key is that if you then meditate, however, without having examined your distorted self-image, your, your central CPU, you know, your distorted inner wiring, then you will simply intensify your inner wiring and you will not transform yourself. You will not move to a more open-minded, open-hearted, interrelated way of being where you start getting along better with others. You notice them more because you're less focused on yourself. You get better feedback back from them because they notice that you're noticing them and they like you, et cetera, et cetera. And you can be much more successful. And success really comes in life, not just from any big thing you do about yourself, but it comes from how open you are to other people and how you see what they need, what they want. You listen to their advice. You can see their perspective. Then you can actually deal with them and others and everyone much better and even yourself, and you feel much happier, and you become much more capable. So that's that's a key thing. There's a bunch of different ways I want to dig into this. Let's start with okay. the idea of kind of analytic meditation or critical meditation or insight yes. meditation. Yes. What does that mean? What does that look like practically? Well, it looks like thinking something over and investigating it. And it means that you don't, when you sit, if you do sit or whatever posture, although better not to take the posture of Rodin's thinker because it's much too uncomfortable to maintain for a very long time if you know what it looks like. And anyway, when you sit down to think over something, you explore it and you're fueled by the realization by taking a little bit of confidence in the great teachers of humanity saying that you as a human being are capable of understanding something more deeply. And analysis means you take things apart, you look at its components, you see how it's made, you look at its causation, and you see its context, and you go deeper and deeper, and you then you look at the part of the parts, and you take that apart. So in a way, ultimately, you can analyze everything to pieces, and it will disappear. But then you know how it's put together. So you do that about yourself. And then when you do, you get more aware of your moving parts inside, especially inside your mind, but your body also. And then the more you're aware of that, the better you can make them function. But of course, to really completely get it, then you do have to fit it with a one-pointed concentration ability. Otherwise, if you just keep scanning, kind of, and you, you scatter yourself too much. But the scanning one is the most important one, and you can penetrate right to where you have an experiential understanding of the nature of reality. And also, you go beyond your concepts. You use your concepts says to take aim, so to speak. But once you get down, it becomes very experiential. And you go beyond, you realize that reality is beyond anybody's idea of reality, which is why Buddha was so special. And I think he says, well, I understand everything, but I can't really explain it to you that well, because it's beyond explanation. However, what I am confident is that if you put your own head into it, you can understand it yourself. You know, you really can. So given that's what I love, by the way, when I first encountered the Buddhist teachers was the fact that they, for one, unlike the Western religious people or theistic religious people, they didn't say you just have to believe something, whether it makes sense to you or not. 
because you can't understand it ultimately. Only God can. I didn't like that particularly. A and B, and then the scientists tell you, well, you can't really understand everything. You can understand a small piece, analyze it, write it down, make a formula, but then that will open up to you how much more you don't know, sort of routine. So finally, also, you can't understand. So both those Western options and actually other cultures too are pretty much weakening of the human ability to use that marvelous supercomputer we have in the wetware in our brain, you know. It's just amazing. Whereas the Buddha said, yes, you can really understand. You just have to put your mind to it. You have to learn. You you can use for help by teachers. But even without a teacher, you can learn if you really examine yourself in your world. Remember Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. Buddha never said that. He just said the unexamined life will be frustrating, and the fully examined life will be blissful. So he took it a little further than dear old Socrates. So before we get into the kind of the experiential understanding of the nature of reality, which I'm fascinated by, I want to touch <laughs> on kind of the just to sort of clarify my understanding of this. I understand the meditative practice of kind of sitting there, bringing your thoughts back to breath or something like that. This yeah. kind of analytical or this insight meditation, is this an actual meditative practice or is this more like kind of journaling, thinking, setting aside contemplative time? Well, it is a kind of analytic practice, but you see the mindfulness craze that has swept the country tends to be taken by people as a method by bringing back to the breath of disidentifying from the thought flow and just being there, just breathing. So in a way, it's a version of the approach state, you could say, of one-pointedness, of mind emptying. And in a way, it's foundational, of course, for inside meditation, as well as one-pointed or quiescent meditation. But the way most people do it, it pretty much tapers off into quiescent meditation. Inside meditation, where it is, is when you go in and you look and see how your mind is, you know, you, you come back to the breath just as a way of actually heightening your awareness of the distractions, really, rather than just just breathing. And that is to say, you begin to see what it is that takes your mind away. You look more objectively at the thought flow. You see where the mechanisms of the flow through are. How does this thought flow arise from this sense stimulus, from that memory? You penetrate that thought flow. You actually then see where there are negative thoughts and where there are positive thoughts that open you, thought that is thoughts that open you or thoughts that close you down, which are the negative ones. And then, in other words, it's more penetrative where you just don't just not, oh, that's a thought. But you say, well, what thought is that? And how is it benefiting me? And how accurate it is? And what does it come from? And actually, whose voice is it in? Is it my mother's voice, my uncle's voice, my elder sibling who always told me I was a pipsqueak or whatever it was, you know, some put down voice or some teacher's voice? or some preacher's voice. In other words, you begin to really gain a leverage over how the mind works. And then you begin to edit how the mind works and you reinforce the positive insights and you de-enforce the negative ones, the habitual ones that just have you spinning. And some of the popular mindfulness insight practitioners do that to some degree, but unfortunately, I think the most of the populist ones just do it for the mind quieting. However, I'm not against that. I think that's fine too, because some people need mind quieting, but if they just only do that, sooner or later they'll be disappointed that the, the, just the palliative of the mind quieting has not actually made them happy. 
It has not actually given them a deeper genius about the nature of life. And therefore, they have not found bliss and they're still frustrated. And then the really unfortunate result would be they say, well, all meditating is useless and it's all useless and I'm just going to watch TV or something. On the other hand, of course, TV is meditating. Reading a book is critical thinking. In other words, when you learn verbally, externally or internally, having the, the debate or dialogue with another person is also critical thinking. And just when you bring it inside as a meditation into your own mind, you intensify it. That's all. Although in the tradition, I don't know if you know anything about Zen, but you know, they have a tradition they call Dharma combat in Zen, where you kind of debate other practitioners or your teacher. And they have this very much in the Tibetan monasteries, because they say that to honestly debate yourself, that is to have like one voice inside yourself, challenge another one, like one voice, one habitual voice a lot of us have is, oh, you can't really do that. Oh, you're just you. You can't really change. You're always the same way you are. And then the critical voice is, well, actually, you do change all the time. How do you say, why do you say that? Every time you think something, you change. And pushing you toward transformation and seeing yourself as a work in progress and able to really develop yourself. These are two voices inside. And they say it's difficult to be honestly, truly critical with yourself unless you are pumped up to it by being critical, emotionally debating. So they have debating with others as an art form, as a learning form, as a premeditative launching form that is very powerful, actually, and particularly when it mobilizes emotions. You know, like when you make when you're wrong and you fight to be right, but then actually rationally you finally realize you made a mistake. That's how you change, you know, and then you can do that internally and you can strip away false images, false self-identities, false constricting self-labels and things and, and really develop yourself as a person. That's really important. So how do we kind of going back to one of the ideas you talked about within this, how do you edit the mind to reinforce positive insights and, as you said, de-enforce negative insights? Right. Well. Well, you need it's helpful to have help of others and so you read the great enlightening teachings or some of the and that a lot of them are not in buddhism there's great enlightening teachings in hinduism and christianity especially mystical christianity mystical islam mystical judaism kabbalah so you mobilize minds that are further than you along that path and they left methods they couldn't just you know transmit their experience that unfortunately or they would have of course but unfortunately they can't because you're the only one who can learn your reality in a viscerally transformative way but they did it. Are there others who have done that in, in whatever tradition? And uh, you use their help and they give methods and patterns and templates of where you might want to go. And then you go out into your own mind and you learn to note that, well, last time I lost my temper and get totally freaked out. Last time I got brooding vindictively about how I was going to get revenge over so and so for three weeks or a month. And then they moved to another city and I just continued to brood, etc. In other words, it's like based on the combination of experience and learning, and you start editing useless mind patterns that are completely useless to you and actually debilitating to you, and they weaken you. And you do that gradually by learning methods to do it and also getting help of others to do it. There are qualified teachers, therapists, and even even noble friends who, who would really like you and therefore dare to be critical of you. And all of that will, in, in the case of us males, often those are females who have a very sharp intuition and can often give us pointers about where we, we need a little 
re- redo a little a little improvement. They really can. And we, we have to overcome our male tendency not to want to listen, you know, because we didn't we got tired of listening to our moms at some point, you know. <laughs> and we're a bunch of chauvinists anyway. What what can you say, you know? Don't you think? Maybe not you, Austin. I should speak for myself, actually. (laughs) No, I mean, I think there's a lot of different insights that come out of that. And I want to kind of come back to something sort of a concrete, even if it's sort of a first step or one kind of method or strategy someone Mm -hmm. listening can use if they say, hey, I want to take a first step towards kind of insight meditation or more specifically, you know, reinforcing kind of the positive insights in my mind. What would be sort of the first step? Well, the first step is a little bit to calm down. And that's what they do teach well about counting the breath, for example. Or you can say a mantra and bring your mind back to the mantra. It's maybe even more effective than just counting the breath. But counting the breath is very time-honored, hallowed one. So that's good. And you begin to get a little calm. You feel better. Your, your blood pressure, your pulse decreases. Your blood pressure comes down. Your breath will slow naturally, actually. And then you more a little more focused. And then don't just drop out of thought flow in that you observe in your mind. And don't just say that's it and then ignore it, but rather start to look at the content of the thought flow. Like, okay, there was a distracting thought, but what was I thinking about? Was I thinking about something that happened yesterday? Was I anticipating something I imagined might happen tomorrow? When I thought about it, how did I feel? Did I make me a tense or uptight? Was I frustrated by something that happened yesterday? Am I frightened of something that will happen in the future? Or do I anticipate with, with relish and I get kind of excited and palms sweaty about something's going to happen? In other words, start to look at the distractions, in fact. And and sort of then the trick as you get a little advanced is you keep the calm and you do it calmly. You don't get excited by it and then get distracted from the distraction. You investigate that distraction and then you begin to you begin to apply your experience and you say, well, what I did that day was really not that good. How I lost my temper, how I got all jealous, how whatever it was. And I say, well, I should see, try not to do that. And then another time, what could I do? Well, Instead of being jealous of that person, maybe I would a little bit take their point of view. What were they thinking during that incident? And gee whiz, maybe they were very unhappy and dissatisfied, etc. So actually, why am I being jealous of someone who themselves is miserable? In other words, you begin to edit your interpretation of your experience, edit discursive thoughts. Don't just drop out of them. Once you have a little bit of to drop out of them, so you have a little more calm and concentration, then you start taking a look at them. You know, the famous Eckhart Tolle, great example was his how he saved himself from suicide. And he wasn't doing Buddhist meditation or Vipassana or any such thing at the time. He was just being himself, sort of a seeker, you know, philosopher, or a little bit of a mystic. But he got in a really depressive cycle, and he was swirling down, right down the drain. And his this voice was telling him, his voice, which he couldn't resist because it was acting like it was his voice, that he should just do himself in that well, life wasn't worth living. And he was really getting close to it. He was suicidally depressed, in other words. And then what it is, is some other voice in his, he heard another voice that was an, also him challenging the voice that was cycling him into depression. And that voice said, well, who, why should I believe you? Telling me I'm useless and worthless and life sucks and whatever it was. And then there started to be a little bit of a debate between them. And the more critical voice began to say to the other one, take a hike. 
stopped putting me down. Even So he was no longer identifying that it was his in, immovable voice. He had another more intelligent, more critical voice that was freeing him from that. And then sooner or later, he, he survived very well. He wrote The Power of Now. He became Oprah's guru. He's a happy guy. <laughs> but it had to do with him becoming critically looking at his distracting thought, which in that case wasn't distracting. He was totally nailed on that bad thought that was taking him down the drain into suicide. And he found just another thought. Now, he doesn't elaborate in the anecdote when he tells that in his Power of Now book that happened. He doesn't elaborate, you know, whether he eventually analyzed the voice that was putting him down. Did he connect to a parental voice? Did he connect to, some, you know, where did, what was the source of that self-image that he identified as himself disapproving of himself. He doesn't, you know, I don't know that. Maybe he did in another book, but I haven't run into that. But the Buddhist psychology totally elaborates such things because it codifies the experience of thousands of people over thousands of years exploring themselves in that kind of a way and improving themselves and getting rid of obstacles and so on. So that that's a very concrete example, I think, is very good. And also anyone can concretely just sit count their breath, have a distracting thought. Mind will say, why am I doing this? You know, sometimes it's usually criticizing yourself for what you're doing. Oh, I'll never get anywhere to do this, or I can't get to 10, or even cheating. Like, okay, I lost track at four, then I'll jump in at seven, <laughs> because I'll consider that I got those other three. You know, people even cheat, they cheat themselves trying to get to 10. And so there'll be distracting thoughts like that. And then you calm those down, but then you say, well, now why am I having that distracting thought? And then find the voice in yourself that always puts you down, that always expects you not to get the best, that always expects you to fail, expects you to always be stuck in that, and find that one and where does that come from and look at it. Now, shrinks do the same thing when you go to a psychotherapist in the sense that you talk to them and they, they push you to keep probing into your memories and things and to locate different experiences and different forms of self identity different self-narratives and help you get an improved narrative. But it's long and laborious often with them, sometimes not. But you can do this yourself, to yourself, much cheaper, and actually quite quickly and effectively. And I think really good shrinks that I know, some of the really best ones, I would call them insight-oriented shrinks, mindful shrinks, they encourage their patients to do that because they have so many, they can't, you know, they're not having any scarcity of, of people who are frustrated and unhappy. So they urge them to do that, to accelerate the process. And I think it works very, very well. Not every taste and not inevitably, but very, very well. In many ways, that makes me think of something we've talked a lot about on the podcast in the past, and we'll include this in the show notes, but kind of what we yeah. call limiting beliefs and how to kind of yeah. root out and remove these limiting beliefs that can be holding you back or causing yeah. suffering in your life. Um, yeah, that's right. So we'll put that in the show notes for listeners who are looking for kind of some of those concrete tools. But I want to circle okay. into another topic that you talked about, Bob, which is this idea that the kind of the concept of the experiential understanding of the nature of reality and the, and the idea yeah. that reality is beyond sort of the, the anybody's ability to describe it. Can you tell me more about yeah. sort of what that is and, yeah. and, and what that means? Well, that's a really fabulous thing, you know, which can also lead and has led a lot of people to misunderstanding. And that is, you and I and Austin and everyone listening, we are in contact with the nature of reality all the time. You know, our body is touching it, our cells are aware of it, our peripheral awareness is aware of it and so forth. But we kind of are not are not attending to our contact with reality, to our own Buddha nature, you could say, where we are sort of 
merged with our environment, we're merged with others, the boundary between us and them is not so rigid. And and occasionally we have a like an aesthetic breakthrough and we like eat a delicious apple and for a moment we just lose our mind eating that apple. And that's being in touch with the nature of reality. The problem we have is that our conceptual apparatus is what we pay attention to. And so their conceptual apparatus, all it says is apple, delicious, nice, happy. You know, it just has some a few labels it slaps on, which don't which don't cover the whole thing. They just kind of make it fit into our preconceived idea. And then that removes us from being in touch with the nature of reality. And therefore, some people misunderstand by thinking that, oh, the, the mind-emptying meditation is the really great one because then I won't recognize, I won't use my concepts and I'll be concept-free. That means I'll be enlightened. But unfortunately, it's a little more complicated because our concepts are rooted at a deep level in the brain, you know, in our in our instinct, in our culture, in our acculturation. And we can suppress their manifestation briefly just by not using them, but they're still there. And so they still are carving up. They happen so fast. Like when you see a blue painted wall, your mind immediately sees a blue, a quote, blue painted wall, unquote. Actually, your perception, when you look up and see this blue surface, you don't have blue, you don't have, quote, blue, but you see something, you see a surface. And actually, you're, of course, not seeing something out there because light photons are bouncing off things and hitting your neurons and your brain is desperately trying to organize it. And if you're not colorblind, it organizes it into blue. And so the point is, it happens so fast, though, the conceptual overlay and the conceptual overlaying structure, which is huge in the brain, is there even when you quiet it for a while. So to really liberate yourself where you can have gut experience of your of the whole universe, you have to use the concepts to unravel the concepts. The thing is like when in the old time, when you make fire with wood, you know, like a Boy Scout, you know, and you rub a bow back and forth over a stick or spin it with your hands with some little dust or a little kindling there, and then the stick itself will burn. And so you use the concept like a fire stick to stir the concepts to where then they kind of consume themselves. And then you, your experience, your perceptual experience, your intuitive, direct, unmediated experience will move out into feeling at one with the things that you're seeing and experiencing as a Buddha does. And But what's neat about that, what I love about it is, yes, it's a far development to become fully enlightened, but actually we have that full enlightenment already kind of in ourselves, right there in, in, in our fingertips. But then we don't pay attention because we only think we have a fingertip, quote unquote, you know, and we don't get down to the cellular level of experience. We don't want to let ourselves go into that. We feel insecure when we don't have a description and a narrative about what we're doing that makes us feel it's under our control. But the problem with keeping it under our control is that then it's boring and it's not fulfilling. And also it's very, very partial. You know, like you go to a concert or you go to a museum or you encounter an art object or you have a personal experience central experience even and somebody says well how was that or how would what happened is that you say well i was really blown away you say so what means by blown away of course in the gangster movies that means killed <laughs> what gets killed or blown away is one's fitting one's experience into a set of preconceived concepts that actually don't allow for that much ecstasy or that much bliss or that much self losing yourself in something where you feel makes you feel really great and you really Really get it. 
And if the goal is to be like that all the time, and not in, not meaning that like that, then you'd be like a vegetable. You wouldn't know what was going on, and you would be just wandering around lost in the universe without knowing who you were. No, so the Buddhahood thing is where you completely are aware of the network, but you're completely free of it at the same time, although you can use it. And so that's a great thing about this experiential thing being beyond our concept. Poets know this. You know, Shelley said poets are the unacknowledged legislators of mankind. And what he meant by that was that a poet sees something that everybody else sees and fit into their preconceived idea. The poet sees something completely new and different. They then articulate that in a poem using some of the old concepts, but using them in a way that then the reader or the one who listener gets a hint of that new experience. But then, of course, that new experience then becomes a formula and a concept, which you then then slap on the thing. And it takes another poem to come and break past that. So but he meant by legislator that they legislate the terms of our perception. And the point is, our habitual, conceptually dominated perception is limited, and it has value, of course, but it's limited. And the direct experience of things is where we go beyond that. And that's where we, Buddhist science really likes contemporary science, uh, which is not just Western, of course, it's worldwide, in that they privilege the experience, which is the empirical experiment, like experience, experiment, and they privilege that over the theory. And they say that theories are all just hypothetical, accounting for previous experiences. And if you have new data from new experiences and experiments, then you revise the theory. And there, therefore, you don't try to capture reality in some absolute dogma in theory. But of course, unfortunately, they do. And their particular thing nowadays is the dogma of materialism, that there's no mind and no power of mind. And that is self-defeating and self-limiting and unnecessary. And I'm sure your audience and the topic you're interested in shows that you are aware of people who want to develop the mind. They want to know about mind over matter. They want to get their own minds in order and get to, and empower them. And they should. And, and they will. And we have to because it's up to we individuals to straighten out this messed up society, planet, what have you. you know? But I won't go into that. So I, one, thing, one example, though, I like to give because it's my main topic nowadays is the Dalai Lama. And people always wonder how he keeps up his joy, his good good humor, his friendly presence, and his own personal lust, like enjoyment of life, relish of life, when he's facing this empire that's chasing him around the planet, that's that's persecuting his people, that has, you know, for 60 years, he's been in exile and so forth, and they've been wrecking this country and harming his people. And yet, and he speaks against it, and he resists it, he doesn't give in to it. But he doesn't let it destroy his daily existence, and therefore he's more capable of resisting because he stays happy in spite of the adversity. And so, how do you do that? This is the direction we're talking about. If you can do that, if if see like he can set an example for us to be able to do like that, then we can certainly do it with whatever level of adversity we experience. And it makes you open, you know. Like for example, say a bad thing happens to you, an adversity. And if you close on that with your concepts and your narrative about that's a terrible adversity, that's horrible, you know, then you're just going to suffer. You intensify the suffering that you already got from the adversary. But if you are more open where what you experience, although it has a pain dimension, it's more than whatever your identified pain is. 
and there's another side to it, you know, then you can find silver linings. You can make the best of it. Then you can take advantage of it, actually. And you can use adversity to empower yourself for more success. But you can't do that if you just whap one concept on it and get dogmatic about it, and that's it, and close your mind around it. So all of the Buddhist science, you know, the, the masterful psychology they have for thousands of years is all about that the nature of life itself is blissful, is reality itself is something good. It's nirvana, actually. Reality, even then, you don't have to go off somewhere in an icebox or a vast empty space someplace for nirvana. This is nirvana. And the more you're open to reality, therefore, the happier you are, the more closed you are, the more imposing of what your preconceived idea of reality is, or it's one that someone has brainwashed you into, the more miserable you will be. So it's generally the methodology, the art, the science of how to open the human mind and heart and have a happy, loving life. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. 
this is the topic that fascinates me and I want to dig deeper into this. How does somebody like the Dalai Lama find this happiness and joy in a world that's so full of suffering? Well, you know, somebody comes up and insults you and that's bad and you're unhappy and sorry that they felt that way. And then you take note, you inventory and you realize a lot of other people didn't. You know, there's some awful stuff. You know, Gandhi had a nice way of putting it that the Dalai Lama I know agrees with, where he said, when something terrible happens, and it's very sad, and there's so many things just in today's news that are really sad, and yet you reflect on the broader pattern of life. You know, somebody killed somebody. Oh, that's terrible. Somebody had OD'd and, and died. But you didn't think about people who didn't hurt anybody else. Somebody who helped an old lady across the street. Somebody who helped somebody carry their package. Somebody who returned to a... The other day, I lost my laptop in a cab, and Muhammad brought it back, and he didn't even want a reward. You know, we had to contact him. We had to tell him how to contact us. I didn't have Find My Mac, which I you know I hadn't turned that on. But we did locate him finally, then told him where to bring it, and he just rushed right back with it, right? Like a 3.5 grand laptop, and didn't want a reward. And I've seen things like, and then there's somebody else stole stuff. You know, I lost this. You know, I got ripped off on that. And a lot of people who did rip me off, you know. In other words, the Dalai Lama counts his blessings. He doesn't deny his sufferings. And he resists and he speaks out and he fights, non-violently fights, to try to right the wrongs. And he's very honest and can be very blunt and so forth and can be unpopular when he has to take a stand sometimes. But he counts his blessings. He looks at a flower on his way to a meeting where he's going to be told you can't get a visa to go see your old friend on his 80th birthday. But, you know, he then sees the flower and he realizes his friend is looking at a flower. In other words, you broaden your 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 attitude and your orientation and you don't fixate on the the bad things, but you don't with and and you do that without just li- trying to live in denial of them. In other words, you embrace that they're there and you resist that and also you even are motivated not to be only focused on the bad things because you know if you do that, you will get bad and you will be totally ineffective doing anything about it. You know, as you know, you know, when you're miserable, you're very ineffective in dealing with people or anything. When you're really happy, not in a hysterical way, but in a kind of zingy way, then you're really skilled that, you know, you can help someone overcome a tantrum. You can, a kid who's all focused because they want that candy bar in that window, you get them thinking about Big Bird or something, or looking out the horse out there and distracting them. And you're really skillful and humorous about it because you feel good. So you share your good feeling automatically. So therefore, it isn't just a selfish thing. It's a motivation to resist the bad is to be happy about the good. And then they'll make you better able to resist the bad because you have stronger motivation and more skill. You know, you know, when someone loses their temper, their psychological studies, they lose. And I don't know how they came with that exact figure, but they say they lose 85 percent of their judgment about how to mend or how to deal with the situation that they're so mad about. So they are the bulls in China shop, right? They crash into stuff. They break things. They they say things they didn't mean. They they overdo it. They get a big ab reaction from the person they're trying to do something with. So that's how he does it. You know, I think I've heard a similar kind of anecdote about the Dalai Lama, but it it reminds me almost, you know, when you're on an airplane and they say you have to put your your own oxygen mask on first before you can help somebody else. That's right. You, You got that. That's a good one. That's really good. And it's even love is like that, you know. You have to be happy yourself already to have genuine according to Buddhist psychology, defined love, meaning not just possessive wish, but the wish for the happiness of the beloved. Because how can you wish for someone's happiness if you have no touch with happiness yourself? 
In other words, oh, I want you to be happy. I'm so miserable. No, that that won't work. They'll say, well, thanks a lot, but you know that doesn't make me happy. Another topic that I'm fascinated with is kind of the relationship between, or the idea of the illusion that we're kind of our own isolated egos opposed to the universe and the reality of kind of the interconnectedness of everything. Right, right. Well, that's what you're talking about. There is the second noble truth or second noble fact taught by the Buddha, which is the fundamental miswiring of a human come from probably many previous existences as a lesser intelligent animal that I'm the only absolute thing around here and other lives are, you know, I could be in the matrix and they could just be illusions and I'm the only real one. So therefore I'm most important to me. And that's the one that puts you in this hopeless situation of suffering, of frustration, because nobody else will agree. The universe doesn't agree. Germs, not just people, but germs, heavy objects that fall down off a mountainside, you know, earthquakes, you know, fires, you know, they all don't agree that you're the most important. And so you run up against uh, death, you know, there's old age. And so as long as that's your thing, you're going to be miserable. That's the second noble fact. That's a fact for a noble person defined, noble being defined by a more altruistic, more, more well-connected, more relativized person. But nirvana, the third noble truth, is the fact that the universe is empty of any non-relational entity. There is no such entity that is relevant to the universe that is not related to it. That's all that emptiness means. Emptiness does not mean a space like a nothingness like space. And that nothing is not a space either. Nothing is actually nothing. So point is that Buddha's discovery 2,500 years ago anticipated Mr. Einstein's, Dr. Einstein's wonderful one of a century ago or so, and that is that with relativity. Because the great teaching of emptiness and selflessness is the teaching of relativity. It teaches that you are totally interrelated. I am totally interrelated. We are a nexus of interrelationship of all that's around us, space and time. And we are a work in progress. And that does not disable us from being making ourselves the best work we can, making ourselves a work of art, and uh, there's which, of which there is apparently no limit. Because the unlimited work of art is Buddhahood, actually. Buddha, it, Buddha's manifestation is the unlimited work of art and where even life itself becomes art you know and because it's all related and so there's infinite energy to be drawn on there's infinite opportunities there's also a lot of negativities but all the negativities are weaker than the opportunities because the negativities come from living beings thinking they got to just get out for number one and then therefore each of them only has one small master, which is themselves, their ego, their little ego. Whereas the more altruistic ones, the more enlightened ones, they're serving everybody else. So they draw energy from the need of infinite number of others, not just their own needs. So they're much stronger in the long run, and even in the short run, if one understands the short run. And that's why I always like to say, Buddha turned the old adage of ignorant people on its head, their old adage being ignorance is bliss, implying they don't want to really know reality because it would be too unpleasant. But in the Buddha's case, he says, no, ignorance is the cause of suffering and reality is bliss. And therefore, when you understand reality, you will know your own bliss, which you already have. That's the and the final really weird one that I'm loving more and more as I get old, since I still am not that blissful. I'm busy, busy, busy. But although I love it, I love that I love being busy with bliss. But still, I'm not that blissful because I'm still stupid. 
But the point is that the bliss that I will eventually find of nirvana, which would be Buddhahood, is my own bliss that I already have. It's just that I have blocks in me from really knowing it. But it's not some remote thing, exotic thing I have to go to, to Mount Everest to find. It is me. It's it, it, We're made of it. And you too, who we all are. So that's really encouraging, I think, actually, rather than all these big put-downs. Reality sucks. You suck. There's some guy outside, like a god or something, or at least minimally a nothingness that will be anesthetic for you, it's like it's like space out in. You know, instead of all those put-downs, it's like reality is bliss. You're made of bliss. You have the intelligence to get rid of the walls and blocks between you and knowledge of yourself, your habitual identity and knowledge of yourself. And so it's very cool. You know, be happy. How about it? Now we got to go. Right? Yeah, we're, we're, we're out of time. But, you know, that does okay. remind me of one of the fundamental conclusions of modern physics, essentially, is the same idea that every single thing in the universe exists interdependent of everything else. And that, you know, exactly. It's, it's completely inseparable. You can't ever really see, you know, one thing except as a connected or relationship in some form or fashion to everything else that's ever existed. Absolutely. In space and, time. and so the, the false thing which they're doing to run away from the Inquisition and the church, which I applaud them doing. But still, the idea that all those relative things, the one thing that's excluded is the, is the mind of the living being. That's unnecessary. The mind is just super subtle awareness. And actually, it is that with which we can go beyond the wave particle paradox into the area of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, into the plenum of infinite energy of the vacuum, where everything is happening, but, but where we can't reach conceptually. And we, we can work on the surface with probabilities and statistics and invent wonderful, magnificent things. But our mind is the one that is, is can reach that completely, seemingly inaccessible, non-objective Copenhagen interpretation enforced realm, which is the constitutive realm of reality of infinite energy with no need for any scarcity or deprivation of anybody. And so that's that they should get, get over not having that be part of their world. I love this one, Henry Stapp, a great senior and magnificent quantum physics guy who explained to me for finally, for the first time, I finally figured out what was wrong, why the whole science wasn't brought back into a thing of being accepting the presence of mind in nature by the Copenhagen Declaration of Bohr and Heisenberg, because Einstein rebelled against it. That's not an innocent, it's a harmful statement that God does not play dice with the universe. When he harmed himself because he said he wouldn't accept that there was a non-objective reality that was the deep energy level, but it was you can't grab in there with any kind of observation, you know, mechanical observation, because the observing act disturbs what you're observing. So the mind that observes is engaged with the object observed. So there is no absolute objectivity, and theory can't reach there. And he then freaked out about that and said, oh, I'm going to come up with a grand unified theory, and ran back to Princeton, got himself a big grant, and never did come up with such a theory because there is no need for that theory because we rather need the experience. And it's waiting there for all the scientists to get it. And actually, Dalai Lama has been a big help in having these dialogues with them. And without being too pushy about uh, any spiritualist or religious business with them and just talking with them on a rational scientific level. And a lot of a number of them have really gotten into it beautifully. Richie Davidson, these kind of people, they're really great. I'm sure you've had them on your show or I 
they should think so. Well, Bob, this has been a fascinating conversation and there's there's so many other avenues and roads and things that I want to dig into, but I know we're out of time. For listeners who want to kind of do some more research, find you and what you do online, what is the best place for them to find you? BobZerman.com. That's www.BobZerman.com. There's like a, a hundred and some podcasts on that. And there's a lot of stuff there and, and access to my books. And the one I'm I'm promoting nowadays is The Man of Peace, which is a illustrated novel biography of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, 80 years of life. And it's like a giant comic book. It's a lot of fun. Like he, he's a new mutant, actually. <laughs> and he hasn't beaten the bad guys yet, but he will. Because <laughs> he's, do, he's doing nonviolence, and that will win over this ridiculous self-defeating violence that no one can really use. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all this wisdom, so many interesting insights. It was great to have you on here. Thank you, Matt. I enjoyed talking with you. And another time, I'd be happy to. And I'll try to be on time. Take care. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.